Hello and welcome to the Critics' first ever podcast. I'm David Scully and this week our political editor Graham Stewart and I spoke to former Trade Minister Lord Lilly about how Boris Johnson can learn the lessons from Margaret Thatcher's large majority. And Graham also caught up with two of our contributors, Hannah Betts and Robert Thickness, and chatted about the timelessness of wearing black and the politics of opera. With us today, we are talking to Peter Lilly, Lord Lilly of Offer. Uh, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I want to start by reflecting where we are now and where we were when you first entered Parliament. Uh, we seem to be at the end of a, of a three-year national trauma, which, is, which has ended conclusively in, in Brexit happening and with a very large Conservative majority. You entered Parliament in 1983, just, which had just followed another major national uh, uh, crisis and moment of revival in, in the Falklands War, which was followed by a very large Conservative victory. What are the, the, the lessons that Boris Johnson could learn from the experience of where the Conservatives were in '83? Was hubris to come to follow, or actually was the lessons of '83 very positive for where we are now? I think the lessons overall were very positive. Uh, of course, we had an even bigger majority then, but it's the last time the government had a, a massive majority. And because of the success of the Falklands War, there was a feeling that we could and should tackle problems, and that if we were sufficiently uh, driven, we could. And I think the biggest consequence of Brexit will be that Eurosceptics will no longer be able to blame Europe for everything. Eurofanatics will no longer be able to look to Europe for the solution to everything. We'll all have to work together to solve problems. And that will be a tremendously healthy thing. One of the things that struck me as very interesting about Boris Johnson's speech in Greenwich the other day was that he was saying, actually, in many cases... Britain has higher levels of, of regulation and social protection than, uh, than, than the European Union. Um, coming to your point about uh, uh, Conservatives no longer being able to blame Brussels for their problems, do, do you see this now as a time to roll back the state? Or actually have we reached a, a stage where the Conservatives are, are, are relaxed about the, 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 the nature of the welfare state and of social provision in this country? Well, certainly we're not going to roll back the uh, generosity of social provision. But we will be able to do in respect of European regulation what we did in respect of British regulation during the 80s, and that is reform it, not to um, abolish it, but generally to try and make rules and regulations uh, less onerous to business and less of an obstacle to new entrants to any industry. And that probably will be the biggest single uh, policy benefit from Brexit, more so than trade deals. It seems to me that the Conservative Party's long path to Brexit, I mean, it's been a, a process, not an event. There's no one moment when you can say this was the moment when the party be became a Brexit party. But something happened to Margaret Thatcher between 1986 with the, with the Single European Act, which created the single market, as we know, and 1988, when she delivered the Bruges Group. Uh, um, what, what was it that, that changed? Did you perceive it at the time, or is this um, the historian's gift of retrospect? I suddenly felt it at the time. I was representing Britain at the uh, meeting of Commonwealth finance ministers in Cyprus 
when the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, made the Bruges speech, and I had only forewarning of it, but all the ministers clamoured round me in the morning, the news was full of this speech, asking me what it meant, because they had to tell their uh, home governments. And I remember saying, well, it should be obvious to you, most of you uh, became independent countries. Uh, we're merely seeking to regain our own independence. So it was fairly obvious that it was the feeling that we had lost the power to govern ourselves in lots of areas, and she was signalling that she was not going to give up anymore and was going to get some back. Do you think she felt misled about the nature of the Single European Act? And, and should she perhaps have had a, a... She was famous for her grasp of detail. Should, should she perhaps have understood better what it was she was signing? She was partly misled, although initially the uh, single market was about mutual recognition of standards. I was the minister who had to introduce all the legislation in the 90s when it actually was introduced. And I made lots of speeches saying this will be wonderful, uh, meaning it will be wonderful for British exports. Actually, since the single market came in, our exports have grown by less than 1% a year to Europe. It's had, uh, <laughs> they slowed down since it came in. But consumers have benefited, not producers. Consumers have benefited because before they had to make 28 different varieties of washing machine, one for each, one range for each country. Now they only have to make one range for every country. But that's as much a benefit to Americans supplying or Japanese supplying Europe as it is to domestic producers. So it brings down the cost of washing machines, but gives no advantage to domestic producers. And that's what we didn't foresee. Then it moved on from being mutual recognition to centralised regulation. And that was when it ceased to be of any value to us at all and became a positive impediment. Another great moment on, on, on the path to Brexit was Britain's leaving the, the ERM. Uh, and it, it was, to many of us, a moment where it seemed that the process of gradual uh, um, uh, um, combining of monetary policy and, and leading towards single currency hit the rocks. Um, looking back at your time working with, with Nigel Lawson in the 1980s, uh, what, what drove his commitment to to joining the ERM, given that, that he was a Eurosceptic? Or, or was he not really, as we would describe it, a Eurosceptic at that time? Has that come later? No, he was always a Eurosceptic. He took the view, uh, I disagreed, but he took the view that we could hold the line at membership of the ERM against a single currency and that a single that the ERM would be helpful in getting down inflation. Uh, it was easier as a target than monetary targets. Uh, I was made Economic Secretary to the Treasury under him. Interestingly, we never talked about it in our morning meetings. He left that just himself, Peter Middleton and Terry Burns and the Prime Minister. But when I became Economic Secretary, I looked at my terms of reference and found I was responsible for monetary international monetary policy. So I said to my officials, well, that's the ERM. It looks to me as if Chancellor is intending us to go in. Can you tell me what happens if we go in and it doesn't work? Will we be able to leave? And they hadn't thought of that problem, so they started doing a paper on the legalities of leaving if we joined and it went wrong. I then got summoned by Nigel and told that this was beyond my pay grade and I shouldn't troubling my little head with these things but it turned out to be the only question that mattered. <laughs> with John Major uh, 
At what stage, I mean, he now describes himself very much as regarding Britain leaving the European Union as, as the greatest foreign policy mistake uh, of our times. Uh, when he was prime minister, he had a balancing act between uh, those in the cabinet, like uh, um, like um, Michael Heseltine, who were very supportive of the European project, and and those like yourself, who, who were sceptical uh, or beyond sceptical. Um when was the the moment, do you think, when he felt he was going to fudge along with not really declaring a policy on joining the, the, the single currency or not? And given the balance of the cabinet, uh, was that politically the only line he could really have taken, whatever his private views may have been? I think the latter is the case. He could really had very little option. He had a very weak hand, a very small majority, uh, which was uh, out. You know, there were more potential rebels. Indeed, during the Maastricht Treaty, more than half the backbenchers at one stage or other rebelled against it. So he was in a weak position and he, as skillfully as he could, tried to steer the party through. I considered resigning at one stage, but worked out if I resigned. Several junior ministers had said if I did, they would resign with me. Then we would lose our majority there would have to be a general election. Probably John Smith would win. And then we go in to the single currency lock, stock and barrel. So instead of having a half a bad thing, we'd have had 100%, so I didn't resign. Um, but he, he really had very little option. He could have done what I might well have tried to do if I'd been in his shoes, have said, well, actually, I'm taking this very clear line, uh, if you don't like it, leave. Uh, but it might not have worked. It might just have led to a split of the party. and probably would. So who knows, he probably did the least bad thing. After Tony Blair's landslide victory in 1997, the, the Conservative Party spent a period where really whatever you say, said, whatever you did, a lot of the electorate simply were not interested do you think this is going to be the problem for Labour now? If you were giving advice to uh, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey or, or, or to Keir Starmer or to Lisa Nandy or whoever emerges as, as the leader of, of the Labour Party, what, what experiences that you had would you see as being able to be done a different way so that an opposition party which has been badly beaten can, can still be uh, at the centre of the national dialogue? Well, we were badly beaten because we'd been in power for 18 years and the Labour Party had used that period to make itself electable. Tony Blair had ditched all clause for and all the that promises to keep, promised to keep what Mrs Thatcher had done. Uh, the Labour Party now is in a slightly different position. We've already been in power one way or another for 10 years and if they can get their act together, sooner or later people want a change. It'll, that'll come much sooner than it did post Blair's victory. Uh, but they've got to get their act together and make the Labour Party electable. And that needs uh, either a Kinnock figure or a Blair figure to do so. And that doesn't seem to be available. I was very surprised that Hilary Benn wasn't standing because he, I would have thought, would be the one, from our point of view, would be the most dangerous. Mm. Who of, of the three likely contenders, who, who, who would you regard as the most dangerous to the Conservatives? Well, they all have their failings. Keir Starmer looks the most moderate, but he, in a sense, was the architect of their defeat by forcing them to go for a second referendum, 
which was a slap in the face to a large chunk of their voters. And, uh, but, you know, maybe that issue will have shrunk in importance and he can steer the Labour Party to be more electable. We need a good opposition. A good government needs strong opposition. And the British Constitution <laughs> needs an alternative government. So it's rather important they do find someone, but I'm not sure that any of those three are, the, are likely to be able to do it. And returning to, to the Conservative Party, um, many of what we might call the, the more diehard Eurosceptics have had a position of some scepticism towards Boris Johnson. Uh, and now many are coming over to him. Um, do you feel that uh, they, they are right to believe that, that he will do what, what they've long desired and, and wished for? Or ultimately, is he a, a politician balancing many different concerns and that there will be some form of compromise which... which will be difficult for some of the true believers to, to swallow? I think well, all politicians, all prime ministers have to balance interests and inevitably some people disappointed. But he uh, has set off with a very clear line and he knows that he's got to retain the loyalty of his new voters. And they're not going to be impressed if he gives them only half a Brexit uh, and he's very clearly understood that and is therefore pushing a very clear line, absolutely in line with what he promised before the election. Uh, so I've got no worries. Um, I think he always has been a Eurosceptic. I was impressed when he was writing stuff from Brussels, got to know him slightly, when my seat was split in two in ahead of the 97 election. I wrote to him and said, why don't you apply for St Albans? Because I was taking the northern half, which became Hitchin and Harpenden. Uh, and I'll use my influence to get you in there, because I wanted a good Eurosceptic in there. So I certainly believed then he was a Eurosceptic. He very wisely refused, because we probably lost St. Albans to the Labour Party. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, how your advice might have changed the course of Conservative history. <laughs> yeah, at the start of the podcast, you said um, big majority is a chance to make some big changes and to tackle real problems, just like was done after the Falklands War. Are you worried at all about things like the decision over Huawei to grant um, you know, state-run Chinese firm access to our 5G network? Do you think that's a, a possible danger of not tackling some of these big problems? Well, I'm no expert on 5G and Huawei, and I don't know anyone who is. But what he announced seemed to me uh, rather a good compromise, which greatly appeared to me to greatly limit Huawei's involvement. And give um, those who are concerned about it, both here and the other side of the Atlantic, a large measure of what they wanted in terms of protection against any security risks. But uh, I wouldn't rely on my own personal judgment on it at this stage. I'd need to take the sort of expert advice I assume he's taken. Do you think the new, um, the new landscape after Brexit, do you think there is more scope for... I'm not saying the state builds a, a, a rival Huawei, but, but more of a kind of muscular approach to these kind of issues. That's a very one-off issue that happens to combine technology and security. I guess, I guess moving away from a kind of laissez-faire free trade approach. I doubt whether we can move to a position where we're going to be able to create national champions. Uh, someone said governments are very bad at picking winners, but losers are very good at picking governments. And... We don't want to get ourselves in the position of 
handing out large dots of money to people who tell us they're going to make uh, sunshine out of moon beams, or, you know, energy out of sunbeams out of cucumbers. Um, so we've got to try and create the circumstances in which we can enhance the economic fortunes of parts of the country which have lagged behind things like uh, free ports and improving infrastructure and above all improving training will be the key. Looking at Boris Johnson's domestic agenda and and the focus on infrastructure and higher spending more generally, um, would it be fair to say that um, Boris Johnson is is a Eurosceptic version of Michael Heseltine? He probably has Michael Heseltine's enthusiasm for big projects and he told uh, Conservative peers that he was worried about cancelling HS2 uh, when there were no other alternative uh, infrastructure projects benefiting the North, which were going to be shovel-ready ahead of the next election. So he doesn't want to go into the next election saying, well, I stopped the uh, very wasteful and expensive project, which nonetheless some people took as totemic of helping the North, and I haven't yet managed to start digging any holes on new railways east-west. Uh, actually, I think that tells us that we've got to try and speed up the processes by which uh, new projects have got up and running. The idea that we build a railway that takes longer than four world wars to build. I mean, it's just not credible. I always used to use this to my officials when they tell me how long things would take. I said, that's half a world war if it was two and a half years. Um, uh, can't we do a bit better than that? We've it's just absurd. You can build these things much more quickly if you actually have the drive and dynamism around it. And actually, Michael Heseltine probably did have that drive and dynamism. I hope uh, Boris does too. Mm-hmm. Um, you're now in the House of Lords, and uh, how do you see the role of your fellow peers in keeping this government, bearing the Salisbury Convention in mind, but keeping this government? To, with its large commons majority to, to account? Where, where, the, where the, the, the pressure points between the two chambers, do you think? Well, the Lords is essentially a revising chamber that's only power is to tell the commons to think again. When I was Secretary of State for Social Security, I'd pass and prepare measures lovingly, convinced they had no faults at all, get them largely unchanged through the House of Commons. They go to the House of Lords and my officials will come back the next day and House of Lords, unfortunately, Secretary of State has amended your bill. I'd be very angry until I read their amendments. And I can't think of a single case when I didn't accept their amendments in whole or in part. They're a good revising chamber. What the Lords went wrong over the last two or three years is becoming a campaigning chamber and colluding with the Speaker and elements in the Commons to uh, override the normal conventions of Parliament. But I think... It will continue to a revising chamber. It can't uh, thwart governments, except in extremis. It can delay things for up to a year. Are you looking forward to moving to York? I personally, I wouldn't, it would be personally inconvenient, but I don't think it's a wholly bad idea. If we're going to have to move out for five or ten years, then we might as well use that five or ten years usefully by going to parts of the country where their lordships and indeed the commons are unfamiliar uh, and demonstrating, you know, some interest in them rather than building expensive new buildings in the middle of London or occupying 
valuable new buildings which could be used for other things. So I wouldn't object to it, but it won't happen because the, uh, the forces of inertia will prevent it. Well, so it's not feasible and impractical. Doubtless it is difficult. Well, it, it seems you'll be staying in Westminster, not, not the ridings of Yorkshire. Uh, Lord Lilly, thank you very much for your time. Well, for this segment of uh, the Critic Podcast, we've moved location and we've moved into one of Pimlico's more fashionable salad bars mm. to enjoy some table talk. And we're going to be uh, enjoying some table talk with uh, two of the Critic's leading table talkers, Robert Fickness and Hannah Betts. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, there is two separate themes, but two separate themes bonded by a common vision. And that common vision is the timelessness of art and fashion. Robert, you've been writing in this month's edition of The Critic about the agitprop of uh, modern opera directors trying to uh, give modern uh, relevance to uh, age-old opera uh, and give it a bit of politico-turbocharging. Um, and so we'll be discussing with you about how timeless opera can and should be. Hannah, you've been writing about uh, surely the most ageless aspect of fashion that is, which is going back to black. Yes. Um, Hannah, I'm, go- I'm, going to, I'm going to start with you, uh, if I may. Uh, wearing black, you're a Victorian, you're a widow, you're in the Khmer Rouge, but you're also strangely fashionable. What is it about black which, which never seems to age? Or, or possibly 80s Birmingham, as, um, as I was, being a provincial goth. It's, it's a rather wonderful way of making a statement by not making a statement, isn't it? I mean, it's a kind of quiet exhibitionism that I think we all enjoy. I always used to think that the first teenagers were the sort of 1590s young bucks who bombed around in black... Um, that one can see in, in miniatures in the National Portrait Gallery. And they did that to identify with the Earl of Essex. Um, they did it to, to identify themselves with being anti the regime. Um, and so it, it's always had this kind of rebellious quality um, when not being fiercely practical. But also, I think for a lot of people, it, they like it because it makes them look, it's supposed to make them look thin. But I think in the sense that it makes people look bloody ill a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, we're not too worried about that. And uh, is, is the point of it, though, that, that it, is it a fashion if it's really timeless? Or is fashion surely something which is of the moment? Well, I, I like to think of the column as being a style column. Because fashion, I mean, as you say, fashion comes and goes. And one may partake in it or not partake in it. But style is what we're all doing. It's unavoidable. Um, and the more you try not to make a statement, the more you'll be making one. Um, so, no, I, I, would, I would refer to it as style column, I think. Also means I don't have to know as much. And why, why, why is black the colour, though? Is it because in the 1920s it was it became so and has just endured as such? Or, well, I mean, I... M- might, it, might it have been fuchsia if, if, you know, if, <laughs> if the, if the dice had landed in a different way? Um, no, it, it covers a multitude of sins. It, it feels, it, it, it sort of, it, it embraces enough antitheses to keep it, to keep it kind of, 
generating different meanings. So yes, it went from being a kind of maid's uniform to the uniform of the lady of the house. But then also fashion designers have made black very fashion because of their, they, they don't want to buy into a look. So this idea that in fashion you wear all black is a sort as a kind of palette cleanse, um, in the same way that perfumers won't wear perfume, um, or an artist will keep their clothes very blank. It's to it's to keep themselves pure for that moment of creation. So in that sense, it's never going to go away. And I wonder though, as, as colours have become, uh, colours have become more colourful. Dare I say, uh, the black becomes more of a, um, a statement against that. Is that the yeah, case? Or well, if we'd gone back to a previous decade when colours were more dowdy, uh, would it have had less power? We, well, I think so. And we certainly are in a period when Instagram has made colour a very uh, exciting thing. Um, and there's a lot of playing up to that in fashion, both in wearers and designers. And so actually the sort of quiet sleekness of black does feel um, does does feel fresh again. This is a, a a woman thing though, isn't it? I mean, it, do, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work for men. <laughs> really? I don't know. I think, you're a priest. I think my first boyfriend probably wore head to toe black. I mean, I think that beatnik look is never is is is, is teenagers will be doing that forever. You know, the kind of black polo neck, black trousers, black boots. It's just not your look, Graham. Well, you, could you, you do s- it? You, you say that, but... Um, I think you could carry it uh, off. Uh, if, if tweed can be produced in black, then I'm ready to roll with it. But, I, I mean, I remember when I was young, many, many... Did you uh, do it? Did many, you do black? Yeah. Well, I, I did hang out in the gothic punk scene. Nice. Uh, uh, in, <laughs> Where in, was in, that? In, in, <laughs> in, in, in Edinburgh. You missed it. If I'd known I'd invited oh, you, you've... Uh, fabulous. Missed an amazing opportunity. Um, and you know the, the influences were were Susie and the Banshees and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the Cure and so on. And I wonder to what extent, when there was a very conscious uh, uh, pop look that was black, mm. whether they, they, that was almost the risk of turning it into a, a fashion rather than a style. Yes, and perhaps it's like the stop clock thing that it does come into fashion every now and then. And we've been in a period where it hasn't been. So people like Anna Murphy of the Times, she's recently written a book, uh, I think a couple of years ago, on on colour and everyone is embracing colour and and it's all very exciting. As I say, Instagram definitely played a part. But I think we are perhaps returning to that sense of of, of moodiness. and perhaps everyone is just depressed. Um, perhaps the Roaring Twenties will see a return to black as a fashion. Is it, is it universal? I mean, is this a, a European and an American thing? Or, or well, different, how global Different how global cultures attach different meanings to it. So, for instance, the white has been a colour of mourning as well, um, but equally with that kind of blankness. Um, I don't know. That's a very good question. I might, I might go quiet on that one. <laughs> Well, I, 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 yeah, I've very uh, thoughtfully be, been out in, in Asia to test it. I, oh, yeah, I, think, I, think, I think black is, is, is as worn out there as, as, it, is, as it is anywhere else. Mm. But, but, I, but is I, it a I, kind I, of trendy black? Uh, well, what, what, was it, what, what makes black trendy? Oh, you know, that kind of edgy, minimalist... Is it lots of architects going around wearing black? It, it's little black dress black. Ah, OK. Mm. See, maybe that's more conservative. Although this winter, I definitely, I lived in a little black dress. 
and partly probably because I'm a bit old and bored. And this this month I've lived in an all black uniform as well. I mean, maybe it's just. But, but the the LBD is conservative, or or or, or what is it? Well, I from to my eyes, it's starting to look new again. Um, but yes, I think for a long time it was perceived as being conservative and safe and and insufficiently interesting. Um, but but perhaps now, perhaps people will start to look at it with fresh eyes. Robert turning to opera. Uh, Robert is wearing a little black dress. <laughs> and you well, look marvelous in it, the, if uh, I may say. It's you. It is me. What? Turn, turn your on little me. black dress. <laughs> Actually, I like your trousers. <laughs> the, actually, the main thing about black is uh, Hannah and I always wear black when we go to the opera because, it, <laughs> because we get in a terrible rage and then we have to go to Joel and cover ourselves in food and drink and it just shows up less. Well, so you can storm out, can't you? And you don't well, distract other people. They, they, you can storm out. Uh, but Joel always keeps our table, expects us an hour <laughs> and a half before we've booked because and when we turn up on time, then they say, well, where have you been? It's, it's <laughs> How was it bearable today? Yes, very bearable. But I, I want Robert to, to turn to you and talk about the timelessness of opera. Uh, in, in this month's edition, The Critic, you've got very worked up about uh, doubtless well-meaning attempts to make opera relevant to contemporary audiences, and you're not having it. Why? Well, because it's relevant without, without anybody having to tell us that it's relevant. I mean, this is, it's, a, it's a, a disease of opera management that they, that they want to treat uh, their audiences like infants and have everything explained to them. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of things going on. The opera repertoire, as generally performed, out of the hundreds of thousands of operas written, uh, we see about 30 again and again and again, all the time. And they are bloody good. Uh, but... They're the ones that, they, that people think they can sell tickets to. This is why you see La Traviata and Carmen all the time, and the other 28, uh, because they're the only ones which can be guaranteed to sell. Now, given that, the directors kind of get bored with, with, with bull rings and, and people dying in Parisian garrets and so forth, and, uh, and they kind of want to entertain themselves a bit more. So they, 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 uh, you know, they try to consider what the, the show is actually about and so forth. This is, I mean, re what really happened was that after the Second World War, this uh, uh, idea of bringing things which had already been happening in straight theatre for decades, and with people like Stanislavski and Meyerhold and the Russians and so forth, um, bringing them into opera, and it was, it was East German directors, Walter Felsenstein and people like this, who uh, decided to bring these theatrical techniques or try these theatrical techniques in opera. Uh, and uh, it caught on very quickly because it, it does, it, in, to a very great extent, renew. Uh, and when done by uh, uh, talented directors and designers, it renews the repertoire completely and you see things in new, and it tells you many new things about the shows in question. And uh, God knows, critics, the last people on earth who want to see another Parisian Garrett. We're actually delighted, secretly, we didn't often say so, uh, to see something set in an underground car park with lots of beheadings and you know, electrocutions and beatings and barbed wire and so forth. It's brilliant. It makes our day, as Hannah will attest. Some of our best evenings have <laughs> been <laughs> spent in underground car parks. Uh, sometimes at the opera as well. Uh, and uh, so, but the, the, the you know how it is. People get people get uh, an inflated view of the of the importance of their own opinions, uh, and this happens to theatre directors a lot. 
uh, and they like to they have they have a ready audience of uh, two thousand people a night that they can lecture about about the rather jejun. So your your point, Robert, would be that that we should all just go to the opera, sit down, enjoy it, set in its traditional setting, and we imprint our own thoughts on it and, and, and leave? Or well, up to a point. Is there not point. a role for a director to, e- even if it's a little bit in your face, to... No, no, to, I, I mean, that's, as I say, I'm, I am really in favour of it because, because it, has, it has absolutely livened up opera. Uh, but then there is the, the, the line is very hard to draw. You just know when it's been crossed, when somebody really has nothing to say apart from, apart from some rather juvenile opinions. And, and they use uh, some immortal text and music to be a vehicle for this idiocy. But this doesn't always have to be an idiocy. Sometimes they actually have, you know, talented directors and designers have, have interesting things to say about that. That's why they do their job. And, uh, and it, can be, it can be delightful. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the audience will object to anything which is in anything apart from 19th century clothes. I mean, if it's 17th century opera, and they're okay with it being in 19th century clothes, so long as it isn't in 20th century clothes, this kind of, you know, the audience is very peculiar about these kind of things. But anything, so long as it's not modern. Uh, because, you know, you're paying for big clothes, you're paying for... And this used to work in the old days, when they had the kind of singers who could come out on stage and just stand there uh, in their big old clothes and sing amazingly without acting, people like Joan Sutherland and, and uh, Pavarotti and so. It was absolutely fine because everything could be done through the voice. Everything was done through the voice. It would, they would convince you of everything. That she, Joan Sutherland would convince you that she was a 16-year-old dying in an attic. Of yeah, kind of. Kind, no, but she would through the voice because you would, you, it would suddenly... What usually happens is because the eyes are stronger than the ears, generally speaking, which is why you don't hear film music. Basically, it's in the mm. background. But sometimes, under very specific circumstances, the ears can take over. And when Joan Sutherland is singing, in a terrible production where lots of fat old people are standing still, warbling, this can happen, and uh, you know, could happen then. It doesn't happen so often now, because there are not so many amazing voices around. Which is another reason why... Fewer fat of... people too, actually. Well, you know, they kind of had to... They, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, they had to move off into sort of Romanian national opera and things like that. <laughs> um, but... That has passed, basically, and so, uh, and that, uh, that having passed, the, the, the facility of having four amazing voices on stage that can make you blind to the inadequacies of staging has kind of also led to this uh, concentration on, on the visual. And it is marvellous, of course, because we have some very good designers and directors working in opera, and it could be terrifically boring. In fact, if you want to see something terrifically boring, you go and see a Romanian opera production where old people in big, mm. big old things stand around in front of cardboard sets, and it's absolutely ghastly. And there are two aspects, aren't there? I mean, there, there, there's the visual aspect, but there's also the sense that the modern analogies that are going to be drawn are invariably obvious and clunky is it your view that that you know if we're going to do Beethoven's Fidelio making a you know, very obvious reference to Brexit uh, is just boring and predictable I don't know which side Florestan could, would be on no. in the we Brexit saw, debate what do, you, what do you think um, Guantanamo one, one. The, the, the whole part they, 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 <laughs> they all they, came out in orange jumpsuits mm. this was, it was a big thing in the old days the yeah. orange jumpsuits and it's it, you know, I mean, the, the, nobody knows why the prisoners are in, in, in Fidelio or in no. prison. I mean, they may be yeah. like rapists yeah. and, and, and handbag snatchers, you know, and, and I don't know. Jay just just, just like remind that. me the history. Be- Beethoven wrote Fidelio before or after he, 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 he um, broke up with Napoleon. 
Uh, well, he wrote it for years and he kept revising it. So, but, but generally speaking, afterwards, yeah, because he he got sick of Napoleon quite early on. Right, right. Uh, but I mean, so, Napoleon so, 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 was a was yeah. a was a fraudulent revolutionary anyway. But and they were all still in love with the French Revolution, uh, and realised that you know the Napoleon had kind of co-opted the bits of it that he that he wanted to, but without actually believing in any of it, you know. Uh, and Beethoven realised that when he was writing the Third Symphony Symphony and, and tore up his famously tore up title page with the dedication and so. Uh, but uh, Fidelio is about. I mean, it, it's it's not even about kind of unjust imprisonment or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's, it is it is about the the yearning for freedom of the human spirit, and he uses prison as a metaphor for that. I mean, everything is a metaphor, of course, and therefore it can be represented in a million. It doesn't have to be some 18th century guy in a prison with his wife dressed as a chap, mm, mm. having, having the batting her eyelids at the uh, female, the daughter of the jailer, in order to, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, it doesn't have to be like that at all, it's a, because it is a metaphor. It can, it can be said, like, in the kind of matrix-like way, absolutely, if you do it competently. Uh, but it takes quite a lot of work. And in a week in which we, we've... <clears throat> heard that the Royal Shakespeare Company is concerned that actors today don't know any Shakespeare or don't know sufficient Shakespeare. Is there not a case that actually you know, the, the excitements and concerns of, of uh, Verdi and, and Rossini and Beethoven and so on are, are so lost on, on a modern audience now that really to, to set it in its own time, I mean, it's, it's not timeless, it is of its period, and, and, and actually it, it needs to be set in our times in order to have any, any resonance at all. It's, I mean, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, they, they had censorship in those days. Verdi kind of wanted to set La, Tra well, La Traviata was a play by uh, um, Dumas, right? Mm. Is that the one? Is that the guy, mm. I think? Um, about his girlfriend, yes, about the, with, with the consumption. I think it was Dumas, yeah. the, the young one. <laughs> and Verdi very quickly wrote it into an opera and wanted it to be performed in contemporary clothes. But, not, but you know, they, nobody would allow it to be performed in contemporary clothes because it was all a bit, you know, how, how dare you say that there are prostitutes in Paris and all this kind of thing. You know, 1850, whoever heard of such a thing? Um, so they had to perform it in, in something like 17th century clothes, even then. So in 1850, it was performed in 17th century clothes. And, I mean, it was quite a rare, it was a very rare thing for anybody to write a, an opera about contemporary issues. The first one who really did it was probably Puccini with La Boheme, which was kind of about contemporary young people and was done in contemporary clothes. But very generally speaking, all those guys were writing about things back in the 13th century anyway, which nobody had heard of. Uh, and the, the, so the question of like knowing the events referred to uh, is, is kind of irrelevant because it's a, you know, a self-contained, you read the synopsis, I tell you what's going to happen. Uh, nobody is ever surprised by acting in an opera because, well, certainly these days we've seen it 150 times before. But you just kind of want to know the action beforehand because you're never going to get what the hell's going on from watching the people on stage and listening to them. You can't understand the word they're saying. And, and there's just people moving very slowly in old clothes, bumping into each other, and, and bits <laughs> of cardboard scenery dropping over, falling over. So the, the actual story has always been a sort of irrelevancy in opera. Uh, because it because it is very so strongly metaphorical creature. I mean, a lot of the audience doesn't want metaphors and so forth. But let's take it or leave it. You know, they they like the falling down cardboard scenery, and good luck. Why not? Um, so if, if we cast it all in black, though, would would that solve the problem? We can we can this is focus very common. Very common. Focus on with green screen. Actually, isn't it particularly with early opera where you tend to get sort of people 
earnestly walking about. But it's terrifically cheap. I mean, because nobody can afford <laughs> sets or anything like that now. Uh, and and so they yes, and, and everybody's got some kind of terrible black clothes that they can wear. On but the, what it does reveal is how many it's like it's like British orchestras. When you say the British orchestra on stage, you realise how many shades of black there are. Uh, because nobody in a British orchestra has ever thought to say you have to wear this black, not just any old black. And you see, there's the, when a French orchestra comes along, they're all dressed in a nice same black or a German orchestra. <laughs> and they look nice. And British orchestras just look absolutely terrible with their sort of top shot trouser suits. Well, we're going to have to, to leave it there in the... In the forthcoming opera of Top Shop and the trouser suits, but... Uh, oh, my uh, God, it would be amazing. Uh, it, it, it's Green. It's got to be done. Yes. Philip Green, the opera. Write it, Bert. Starring Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> Almost a body double, I mean, it's uh, very impressive. So, uh, Hannah and Robert, we'll leave it there for now, but uh, the past is the present and the present is the black, so thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, but why not get The Critic in print? Right now we're offering three issues for just £5. Go to thecritic.co.uk for details.